the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888 Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. This is the first full day of broadcasting since the Supreme Court left town for sure and without any resignation by Justice Breyer or some on the left at Hope. So it's time for a Supreme Court review of the 2020-2021 term. And I'm joined by the Smart Guys 2.0 to do that. Professor Jonathan Adler of Case Western Law School, Professor Steve Vladek of the University of Texas. Good morning, professors. Great to have you. I'm going to start with an open-ended question for you both. Steve, I'll start with you down south. Uh, what did you make of the 2020 to 2021 term of the Supreme Court? Maybe Steve's not with us. Or maybe he's on mute. I, I'll go I, to... I, can you hear me, Hugh? Yeah, I can. There you are, my friend. Sorry about that. So I think, I think the, the short version, Hugh, is that it's by any measure about the most conservative term we've seen in decades. Maybe not as conservative as some would have hoped or feared, but relative to where the court has been for certainly my lifetime, you know, this was a pretty sharp turn to the right across a range of both big and small cases. Uh, Jonathan. Well, I think the court certainly is more conservative, but I don't see the sharp turn that Steve does. Uh, This is still a court that is slow to overturn precedent that doesn't decide more than it needs to. And I think it's worth remembering that, that since John Roberts has been chief justice. This court has both struck down federal statutes and overturned its prior precedents at a lower rate than any post-war court. And at least based on this year, that's not about to change. Now, I will be posting uh, at the WashingtonPost.com later today my review. And I'm with Steve, gentlemen. I think it was a very significant turn to the right and everything I had hoped for on, on the issues that matter most to me. So I'd like to go through those and get your comment on both. Jonathan, let's start on the free exercise clause, both in in Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn, 5-4 decision, and in the Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, 9-0. I think we have a free exercise block that is quite strong, if somewhat cloaked, in Fulton. Your response? I, I think that's right. I think many commentators have assumed that Fulton was narrower than it will turn out to be. Uh, and I think when you combine it with the shadow docket cases, the cases that the court decided that relate to COVID restrictions, that is one of the areas where we see uh, a significant shift. The court isn't overturning Smith, at least not yet, uh, but it is expanding the protection of religious exercise. And Steve, would you comment on that and explain perhaps what Smith is for the benefit of the lay audience? Yeah, sure. So uh, Employment Division versus Smith is this landmark 1990 decision uh, where the majority opinion is written by Justice Scalia. Um, and Smith stands for the proposition that laws of general applicability, zoning regulation, um, building codes, tax laws, um, do not uh, uh, trigger strict scrutiny 
under the free exercise clause do not require especially searching justification. Um, so long as they are neutral and so long as they are not intended to discriminate against religious practice, even you if they burden some religious exercise. And I think that's where, you know, Jonathan's focus on whether the court overruled Smith belies just how big a bite the court took out of Smith, especially in the Tandon versus Newsom decision, the California case from April, where, you know, now the court is basically saying, listen, government, anytime you have a law of general applicability, but you create an exception for anybody, you must also have an exception for religious activity. You know, this so-called most favored nation view of the free exercise clause is not something we've seen before and is not something the court had adopted before. So, you know, I think the court has definitely expanded the free exercise clause, and I think it's taken a big chunk out of Smith, even if it hasn't formally overruled it. Now, it's interesting, Jonathan. I think I've seen it before, but that's because I'm older than you guys, and I remember pre-1990. And I I actually always thought Yoder worked just fine, and the other cases, Sherbert Reverend, worked just fine. I think we're going back there, but Justice Barrett's concurrence in Fulton is the keystone for me. There are some tough questions to answer, but the court will answer them. Is that what you're expecting? You know, I think the court eventually will. I think Justice Barrett, perhaps because she's an academic, realizes that when you pull one thread of a doctrine, sometimes more unravels than you intended, and that the court should therefore think carefully before announcing a new broad test. And certainly, uh, you know, the court was able to resolve Fulton in a narrower way. And I think her view is is that the court should take its time moving back in that direction uh, to make sure it doesn't. Uh, create a dramatic shift that disturbs more than it meant to. Steve, can I try out my my pet theory on you? Because you're a liberal and Jonathan's a conservative. And I I have a pet theory about where the court will go. They're going to try and find a way to protect uh, the established religions of the world as of uh, the 14th Amendment through Wisconsin Beyoder. In other words, they're not going to protect every cult. I think that was Scalia's grand worry. But if you're a traditional world religion and you're just practicing in the traditional norm, you're not uh, doing anything out of the ordinary, you're not threatening public safety, I think you're going to get back to Yoder protection, maybe some kind of intermediate scrutiny or intermediate scrutiny plus. What do you think? I mean, I think that might be where we're heading to, but I do think that, you know, the, that Justice Barrett meant what she said in her Fulton concurrence, I think really comes home in the fact that the court denied cert in the Arlene's Flowers case, which I think, you know, folks had sort of viewed as a chance for the, another chance for the court to revisit Smith. Um, the court denied cert over the dissents of Justices Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch. And so, you know, I think that might be where we're heading to, but I'm not sure I feel comfortable saying we're heading there quickly. Like, I think Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh really meant what they said, for better or for worse. I still think that's a pretty big shift, at least compared to, you know, the last 31 years, Hugh. But you know, what, how big a shift I think remains to be seen. Uh, Jonathan, I know Baronelle personally, and I feel bad that her case was not taken, but I don't think its rejection is dispositive. And I think Steve is right. They're just not biting off more than they can chew in one opinion. And the walls will get higher, but perhaps more carefully crafted and slower than some would like. Do you agree or disagree with that? No, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, as, as observers of the court, we often focus on a particular case that that's particularly evocative or where, where we're concerned about the injustice imposed on a particular business owner or a particular individual. Uh, the court takes a broader view. It's concerned about whether or not a case 
uh, is really presenting an issue cleanly, whether or not it, it helps advance the understanding of a doctrine. And so we shouldn't read too much into the rejection of the Arlene Flowers case, however much uh, you know, that affects uh, that particular business. Now, Steve Waddick, I want to ask you from the left, uh, because my colleague Ruth Marcus is distraught over Arizona GOP versus DNC. As are many commentators on the left, they think it's an undoing of the voting rights. I believe intentional discrimination on the basis of race in any voting practice will be struck down. I think its use in redistricting will be struck down. But the court's not going to reach for that which isn't there, and it's not going to use an impact test. What did you make of, of Arizona GOP versus DNC and other voting and redistricting cases ahead? Well, I mean, I think, I guess I, I, not surprisingly, you am more with Ruth on this than you. I mean, I think, yes, there will still be intentional discrimination claims that can go forward. But the way that Justice Alito effectively rewrote Section 2, you know, a state now has a defense to a claim of intentional discrimination, which is that it was just doing lots of other things, um, right? That by diluting what a Section 2 violation actually is, um, the majority is making it very easy. For states that you and I, Hugh, might think were clearly intentionally discriminating, to say it wasn't intentional. We were actually intentionally trying to accomplish this other thing because of this newfound, non-statutory totality of the circumstances test that Justice Alito read into Section 2 basically out of whole cloth. So I think it's a big deal, not because it slams the door on intentional discrimination claims, but because it's going to make it that much easier for states to defend against them. Now, now, Jonathan, I want you to follow up on this because it reminds me of zoning cases where you have to find from a totality of the circumstances intentional discrimination. And if it's not there, it's not there. I just think it, it reverts to the traditional constitutional standard. What do you think? I think people are overreading the Alito opinion. I think it's important to remember that the district court did not find intentional discrimination. The Biden administration, even though it's been more aggressive than its predecessors in reversing positions, uh, maintained the view that these Arizona laws were, in fact, compliant with Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And Justice Alito did not close the door on uh, finding uh, evidence of, of disparate treatment based on statistical and other anomalies. He just said that in this case, if you look at the various factors, uh, that case has not been made. And I think when you look at the specific restrictions at issue, uh, that is not a controversial take. It's not a take that the Biden administration uh, was even going to argue with, not a take that the, that the district court uh, disagreed with. And I think the court said, look, uh, if you're going to try and get, uh, prohibit something like uh, ballot or say a state can't engage or can't prohibit ballot harvesting, uh, you need more than than tiny disparities on the margin to throw that out under the Voting Rights Act. Steve, you got a chance to respond to that. I mean, the notion that these are tiny disparities, I think, is belied by Justice Kagan's dissent, uh, which I would encourage folks to read. Um, you know, I think the reality is that it's one thing to think that what Arizona did was kosher. It's another thing to think that the statute actually says what Justice Alito says it says. Um, and so, you know, for justices, I realize, I realize we've given up the ghost on Alito being a textualist. But for the, for the other justices who are purportedly committed to textualism, to rewrite Section 2, which, I mean, let's be clear, they have narrowed Section 2 compared to where it was the day before that decision. And to do that, especially when in Shelby County, Chief Justice Roberts held out the availability of broad claims under Section 2 as the reason why it wouldn't be that big a deal to basically eviscerate Section 5. You know, I just, I, I realize some of this is my politics, but I think we have to be realistic here that this was, you know, not a textually compelled result, and I think in many ways a, dis, a, a disruptive result. And Hugh, time's going to tell whether Jonathan really is right 
in his cherry assessment of how easy it's going to be for you know plaintiffs to show Section 2 violations going forward. As someone who lives in Texas, I'm a little more skeptical. You know, I actually agree with Steve, Jonathan. I, I think this is a, a huge barrier to Section 2 and an appropriate barrier to Section 2 because discrimination ought to be provable. You shouldn't find hints of it or the ability to employ uh, sort of radical race theory in detecting what is just generally an animus against, for example, ballot harvesting. And I say, hallelujah, good. The states ought to run their own elections absent intentional discrimination on the base of race or gender. No, I agree with that, Hugh. I mean, I think that that is certainly the way that I read Alito's opinion. He doesn't totally foreclose these sorts of claims, but he does say that if states are adopting fairly reasonable measures, as Arizona has here, measures that in the case of prohibiting ballot harvesting was endorsed by uh, the Carter-Baker Commission is something that a lot of states do for very good reasons, uh, and that it has a tiny effect on the margin uh, on on who votes, um, and there are ample alternative ways of voting, that that's not what Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act prohibits. And I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that if the Biden administration didn't think these provisions were prohibited, what does that say about the dissenters that said these provisions were prohibited? I mean, it seems they're well, the outliers I mean, here, not, not, not Alito. Go ahead, Steve. There's, there's daylight between Jonathan's point that the Biden administration didn't think these provisions violated Section 2 and Justice Alito's opinion. I mean, the Biden administration very much did not take the position that Justice Alito adopted in his majority opinion about how we're supposed to prove a violation going forward. And so, you know, Hugh, I look at laws like the one that Texas is about to probably enact in its special legislative session, and I'm just not nearly as confident as Jonathan is that courts are going to look at Justice Alito's opinion and say, oh, well, this is still clearly meant to discriminate, like the souls to the polls constraints in the Texas law. The elimination of 24-hour voting, which is targeted only at Harris County, you know, one of the most heavily Latino counties in the country. I mean, I just think, you know, it's going to be very easy now for states like Texas to get out of Section 2 challenges. And maybe to some of, you know, some of your listeners, that's a feature. To me, given what Congress intended in Section 2, that's a bug. Now, now, gentlemen, we got to pause on this because I don't think it's a feature or a bug. I think it's a legislative decision by the state. And I don't know the history of Harris County well enough to tell you if there have been abuses over a period of time certain. I, there, there are plenty of explanations for laws that are not race-based, Stephen, right? Yeah, I agree with that. But I, just, I mean, I, I think then the tricky part becomes, though, Hugh, when you have jurisdictions where there's a pretty close one-to-one lineup between race and political party, and you know, a majority party in a state adopts rules that are meant to make it much harder for the minority party to vote, specifically in jurisdictions where the minority party is predominantly members of a minority race, is that a Section 2 violation, right? And, you know, to me, I think that is part of the evil Congress was seeking to address in Section 2. I think it's going to be impossible to prove that after this decision. No, I, I kind of agree with that, Jonathan, but I want to go back to the original point about redistricting as well. We know you can't use race in redistricting. You cannot use race in redistricting, but you can use DNR, can't you? Well, you, you can certainly use uh, DNR, and I think we also need to look at the big picture, which is it is throughout the vast majority of the country, it is vastly easier to vote than it was in the 1980s, than it was in the 1990s, than it was in the aughts. Um, uh, various jurisdictions are deciding whether or not the right balance was struck in 2012, 2016, or perhaps during COVID. Um, that is not uh, a situation in which the massive barriers to voting are being erected. These are small effects on the margin. And 
And again, I don't know, I'm not familiar with what Texas is proposing right now, but certainly what the court was presented with, what we're seeing in most jurisdictions are small changes on the margin against the background of voting being easier than it was when certainly the first five or six times I ever went to vote. Now, I, I want to jam gentlemen into this portion of the conversation, which will only be on the podcast before we return to the broadcast, the 11th Amendment case, because it makes my head hurt to even think I've got to change my mind on 11th Amendment when I go back in. Jonathan, what happened? Oh, gosh, I, I really wish I knew, because I think Justice Barrett <laughs> had the better of the argument uh, against uh, Chief Justice Roberts. I also think that Chief Justice Roberts, I'm not sure he really thought through the implications of his opinion for other aspects of, of enumerated powers and federalism. Um, to say that um, the, the federal government through the commerce power can authorize suits against states uh, to condemn property um, uh, is, is, a, is a potentially dramatic shift. And I think that the majority was perhaps too concerned about the practical effects of uh, limiting the ability to to plan and and develop pipelines, I think those could easily be addressed. I don't think this would have been a huge obstacle, and, and I think that decision uh, is a sleeper decision and is something that constitutionalists should be concerned about. Well, it's a sleep-inducing decision for law students, Steve Laddick. How would you decide? You know, amend. Imagine we have a lay audience listening. What are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, you know, here we're talking about this, you know, thirty-year fight over the circumstances in which Congress can authorize private suits against states. Um, and it was a cornerstone of the Rehnquist Court's federalism jurisprudence to limit Congress's power to authorize private suits against non-consenting states. Um, but of course, as I think you know, you, both of you well know, um, there are some fairly significant academic objections to that jurisprudence um, and the notion that the 11th Amendment, as Justice Rehnquist himself said in one opinion, should be understood not so much to mean what it says, but for the presupposition of our constitutional structure, which it confirms. Um, that's a rather odd way to read the Constitution, especially for conservatives. But, you know, I guess my reaction is a little bit more tempered than Jonathan's, because I think the court has already embraced at least one pretty significant practical exception to this doctrine in the context of bankruptcy. Um, in the Central Virginia Community College case from 2006, Right. The court actually took a big chunk out of the theory that limited Congress's power to subject non-consenting states to suit entirely because of the negative consequences that would result if Congress could not require states to be creditors in bankruptcy proceedings. So, you know, to me, this is just more of a piece with that. And at least that decision, you know, the sky didn't fall after that decision. So I think, you know, we're in for more of this here. Now, now we're back on air, uh, Jonathan. So I want to ask you about my favorite decision of the year after Fulton is Cedar Point Nursery. And of course, I got excited after Lucas uh, again, decades ago. And I thought that the dawn of a new era of property rights had arrived. I'm, I'm hopeful again. Am I wrong to be hopeful? I don't think you're wrong to be hopeful. I mean, I think the court has been moving slow with regard to increasing protection of property rights, but I think the path has been consistent. And Chief Justice Roberts has led the way in holding that uh, it is a taking when the state says that uh, you have to allow uh, people onto your land. Um, the court is reaffirming that private property rights fundamentally entail a right to exclude uh, and that uh, that has to be protected as against state intrusion. So I think you're right. The Cedar Point Nursery opinion is an important decision. I, I think it's one of the more conservative opinions uh, of this term. And I think it shows that 
when the right cases are presented to this court, this court is serious about reinvigorating the property rights protections of the Constitution. The real question is whether or not the court will eventually revisit the Penn Central case, which creates a balancing test for so for takings cases that landowners almost always lose. And, and, and Stephen, I, I want to go to Stephen on this because I think we are one case away from a holding that, for example, the Endangered Species Act, which criminalizes the ordinary use of land if occupied by an endangered species or critical habitat, that that's going to be declared a taking that must be compensated. I think that's next, because if the right to exclude is is uh, in any way abridged, that's a taking. Well, the right to use is the next thing. And that goes back to Penn Central and it goes back to regulatory. Ta- I think we're going there. What do you think? I mean, I think it depends on exactly how seriously we should take the caveat in the majority opinion in Cedar, in Cedar Point that this is only about authorizations of private intrusions onto privately owned property and that government intrusions are in a different category. You know, the chief's opinion sort of gives that the back of his hand. I think that's going to be the fight going forward. So you say endangered species, you I say meat inspectors, um, right? The, you know, what is the theory on which the Cedar Point nursery has a right to be compensated for any government-required um, operation on its land when it's a union trying to do union organizing that's authorized under both state and federal law, but not when it's a meat inspector coming to inspect the poultry conditions, right? That's, that's what has to be hashed out. And if the answer is there's no distinction, um, yes, I think that would be a rather significant revolution in property rights at the expense of the government's ability to regulate things that I suspect we all think the government should be able to regulate. Jonathan, I don't think it's difficult to distinguish those two cases at all. But what do you think? You're the conservative on this panel. I'm just the objective, nonpartisan uh, host. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I, I don't think uh, that government meat inspectors, even uh, occupational safety inspectors, uh, are at any risk of being excluded uh, under this uh, under this decision. Uh, there is a big difference between the government saying we need to be able to access your land to ensure you are complying with health and safety laws and the government saying we are going to allow a private interest onto your land because we want to uh, put our our thumb on the scales in favor of labor versus capital or what have you. And and so I think that line is easy to draw. And and I agree with you, the Endangered Species Act uh, is is something that is going to have to be considered uh, on this basis. I mean, the court has made clear if the government told you tomorrow you couldn't modify a portion of your land so that it could serve as an encampment for homeless people, See, your point makes clear the government would have to compensate you for that. I think we would agree that's fair and just. If the government says you can't use your land because uh, it's needed for spotted owl habitat or black-capped vireo habitat, the government doesn't have to compensate you, even though what you are now doing is providing a benefit to the public at large in protecting that species. I think many people recognize the fundamental injustice of that, and I do think that the Cedar Point decision does does suggest that that sort of governmental intrusion uh, should implicate the takings clause. I'm thinking back to my friends who are still litigating the Delhi Sands flower-loving fly. Uh, Stephen, let me let me close the last substantive area before we move to Briar watching, uh, which is free speech and the disclosure decision out of California. This is the McConnell court, in my view. He built it. It's his court, not the Roberts court, not the Barrett court, not the Alito court. It's the McConnell court. And he has always been an absolute defender of political speech. And I think his view of what the court ought to do is upheld by the California decision. What say you? I, I mean, I think that's right. Um, and I think it's, it's you know, uh, again, I think the court is sort of hiding the ball about why this really matters, which is, you know, does this now mean 
that donor disclosure rules in the context of campaign finance laws become vulnerable. Um, the majority opinion was very careful not to go there, but Justice Sotomayor's dissent, you know, did. And I think that's the next, the next hoop here. And I think, you know, to me, that's where you add, you know, the sort of the donor disclosure and the Arizona case together. And you get this sort of headline that the court wants to make it easier for there to be dark money in politics and also easier for states to make it hard for certain people to vote. Um, and, you know, that, that, that may not be the impression that the court wanted to send. It may not be an impression that you two share, but it is how those decisions are widely perceived on the part of the left, which for all the narratives about how the court was trying to de-escalate the political, the politics of the moment and trying to avoid, you know, broader conversations about the need for court reform, to end the term on those two decisions, I think, is a pretty big um, slap in the face of those who, you know, they're pre- presumably or at least allegedly trying to placate. To get the rest of this, you have to go to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Jonathan, your response. Well, you know, I think that what the court did in the disclosure case was uh, very straightforward, very common sense, an outcome supported by the ACLU, by the Human Rights Campaign, by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. I think the dissent is really taking the radical view that, that a a state government that really has shown no need for this information, that has shown an inability to keep this information private, should nonetheless be able to just demand it. Uh, and and I think that that's um, a burden that, that or that's something that states should not simply be allowed to do just because they think it's administratively convenient for them. Um, I think the that. narrative about this case is, is misleading about what's actually involved, uh, which is that uh, the government should have to have a greater interest such as it, as it has in the context of campaigns, such as it has in requiring companies to disclose information about their products, but that it doesn't have if all it wants to know is who gave money to a particular nonprofit. Stephen? I, I think the question is, you know, whose interests are we talking about here? I mean, the, one of the problems I think Justice Sotomayor quite rightly points out in her dissent is that the rule that the majority articulates puts no burden on the donors to explain why this is actually going to harm them to have this information made public. And so, you know, the notion that in general, the default is anonymity and states need special justifications as opposed to the default being public information where we have special justifications for withholding the public information, for sealing the information, you know, that's the shift here. And so Johnson says, well, the the burden ought to be on the state. And I say, well, at least the donor should be able to show some way in which they're actually harmed by this information being public to justify some kind of secrecy regime. Otherwise, I think the problem is that it's not just that courts are going to strike down disclosure rules like California's. It's that states that want to go in the opposite direction are going to have those laws upheld. And then I yeah, think you know, Stephen, I'm genuinely, I'm genuinely confused by the left on this because the NAACP Klan case from years ago has always told me, and, and I lived it in California. I saw people lose their jobs over the Prop 8 contributions. I saw people persecuted by the disclosure of their names, and I saw the chilling effect. I genuinely confused by the left's reaction to this decision. So I want to give you the platform. Then we're going to wrap up with what Justice Breyer will or will not do. But I just don't get it. I really don't get it. Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, Hugh, I think, you know, the notion that the left is a uniform entity that has one view on everything, I think, is something that's a dangerous way of looking at the left, just as I think you would both say about the right. Um, but, you know, there are different concerns in different cases. I mean, the, the, the NAACP case from the 1950s is about when those lists could be used, right, for, for violence, when publicizing information is going to lead to personal threats to the safety of the individuals at issue. And no one is disputed, including the dissent in this case, that states 
have good reasons for keeping names secret in that context, that laws that require disclosure in that context are unconstitutional. The question is, what about context where there's no similar concern, right, where the litigants, where the relevant parties here, the donors, haven't made any case that public disclosure of their names would actually redound to their detriment and would cause them harm or the reasonable threat of harm. And so the question is, in that context, what should the default rule be? That's my view, at least to you, but I would, you know, I would be very wary about attributing that to anybody else on the sort of so-called amorphous left. Uh, Jonathan, then I want to move to Justice Breyer in the term ahead. Do you have a response to that? Yes, real quick. I mean, I'm with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund's position in this case, the ACLU's position in this case. The default should be that who people choose to associate with, what groups they join, what groups they pay dues to, what groups they support, should be their decision to make. It's something that should be private. And if the state wants to intrude on that, uh, the state should have to be able to demonstrate its need for that information. That's the position the ACLU took here. And they were absolutely correct. And I think it's quite radical to suggest that the default should be the state can force you to disclose who you associate with, who you pool resources with, Uh, especially when it's not in the commercial sphere, but it's in terms of your personal uh, political beliefs and and the causes you wish to support. Now, I want to wrap up the Smart Guys 2.0 end of term discussion with Jonathan Adler of Case Western Law and Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School by talking about Justice Breyer's non-retirement as of the moment that we're talking about this. And I always thought it was improbable given their loom before us, abortion decisions and gun decisions and possibly affirmative action, race conscious remedies and penalties decisions on which I just can't imagine him stepping away from the plate, Stephen. Can you? I mean, I, I, I guess to you the short answer is um, maybe because I think that he's going to feel an increasing amount of pressure as we get closer to next summer. Um, you know, I, I, there's no magic timeline, as we talked about last time you had us on, for when justices announce their retirement. There's a relatively recent norm that they do at the end of the term. But it wouldn't surprise me at all if Justice Breyer announces sometime in, you know, perhaps next April after the April argument session is over that he's you know, willing to retire at the, upon the confirmation of his successor. So I, I still think the odds are good that by this time next year, he will have announced his retirement, even if it hasn't been effectuated. But you know, I would not bet any particular amount of money on when in those 12 months it's going to happen. I agree with that 100%. Jonathan, do you? Yes, I do. I think Breyer wants one more year. I think his view is the balance on the court's not going to shift. Uh, whether it's him or it's a replacement. And I think he wants to be the senior liberal uh, in dissent, uh, especially on these some, some these big cases. I think the area that it would make a difference if he were to be replaced is the area of criminal justice. Uh, we're seeing the split on the conservative side of the court. The younger justices uh, appointed by President Trump have been much more open to concerns uh, raised about criminal law, about the scope of federal laws. We saw that in the computer hacking case. I think you would see the same thing on the left. That is to say, a progressive justice uh, replacing Justice Breyer would be more sympathetic to criminal defendants than Breyer is. Uh, but I don't think he's concerned about that. I think he wants to be uh, the senior dissenting justice for at least one year. And so it'll be at least a year before he leaves. Let, let's close on a, uh, a matter of unanimous agreement. Jonathan Adler from Case Western and Steve Laddick from Texas Law School. Thank you both, gentlemen. The Smart Guys 2.0 will return again on the interview with Hugh Hewitt. That concludes today's episode of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember, 
to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.